Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. We're going to be back in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue our study in this particular book, the the first epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, his protege, if you will, Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Timothy has been charged by Paul to bring into order things that are disordered within the church. There are a series of false teachers who've come in and, and taught various things, divisive doctrines, and they've, they've changed the structure of various things. And the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, here's what God has revealed. Here's what the church needs to be doing. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 2, and, and it talked about prayer, the, the fact that we are called upon to pray when we gather together, to pray for the nations, to pray for all people everywhere. Um, and, and he's going to continue to talk about prayer a little bit today, but he's going to shift his focus from prayer uh, exclusively to talking about the role of men and women within the context of the gathered church. So this is a really important passage for all time, but especially for us. So let's read the text together. I'll begin in verse 8, and then I'll read through verse 15, then we'll pray together and we'll study God's Word. So Paul says to Timothy, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, I do thank you. I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the gathering of believers here at Cornerstone. I thank you for the church that you have allowed us to be a part of and allowed maybe visitors this morning to come into and worship with us. I'm thankful for what you've done and what you are doing with us. But Lord, even as Dan reminded us and even as your Word reminds us, there is a world of, of believers going through various trials and persecutions and sufferings, and it is important for us to remember our brothers and sisters and what they face. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you have given to all of your children, and I pray that you would especially strengthen those who are enduring persecution, our brothers and sisters in Haiti that we know well, who gather in fear at times, because men want to exploit those brothers and sisters. They want to take advantage of them. So Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them in their inner man and help them to remember and believe with all of their heart the scriptures which tell them that the light and momentary afflictions of this life will give way to an eternal weight of glory that is not to be compared with anything we experience here. 
So Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters, those we know and those we don't know. We pray that your gospel will bear fruit in their lives and in their hearts for their comfort and hope, but also through their lives that they would be a conduit of gospel truth to the lost world around us, even those who are persecuting them. And so Lord, now as we focus on the scriptures, we can be thankful because you have not left us without instruction. You have given us clarity on how we are to organize ourselves as a church. And you've even given us uh, clear justification for these things in your word. So as we study, as we uh, listen to your word, as we sit under the preaching of the word, Father, would you guard our hearts from arrogance or pride? Would you allow your word to confront those cultural trends that are not in line with what you've revealed? And Lord, help us to be thankful that you have given us direction and to gladly, joyfully submit to it. That's my prayer, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to address the big elephant in the room, or more likely the elephant in this text, that this is a very controversial passage. It's without question the most controversial and divisive passage in all of 1 Timothy, and probably one of the top five most controversial passages in all of the New Testament. It is that, very much so. But it's also clear instruction from the Word of God, from God Himself to us, on how we are to order ourselves as a church, how we are to understand our roles and responsibilities as men and as women. And I want to remind you of something a little bit. I want to remind you that last week we talked about The context of this instruction is within the gathered community. He's talking about what we are to do as we gather ourselves together for corporate worship. That prayer that is to be offered in verses 1 through 7, the the instruction on prayer is really focused on the gathered community, and we see the same thing here. So there's some context, but there's another thing that you may or may not be familiar with, and it's the fact that a lot of times... Uh, When people look at this passage of Scripture, they want to divide it into two things. Much effort has been made in recent years to try and frame this passage, and not just this passage, but especially this passage, in one of two lenses, right? So how do we understand this instruction? Some will say that we need to understand it as universal instruction. This applies to everyone in all cases. There's no exception. And then some will say, well, no, this is just a a local situation. This is just what was going on in Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul was addressing that. So we don't really need to focus on so much what he says here. We just know he was addressing a problem in that church. That's how the argument goes. The argument is made that some of the things in this passage fall into the category of universal instruction for the church, while some things fall into the category of local instruction for the church in Ephesus. And let me just say that in one sense, it's not a bad idea for us to look at this passage and other passages through the two lenses. What's going on locally? What's the immediate context of the situation? But then we also have to understand that what's going on locally and the instruction from God that addresses that situation locally, it also has a universal appeal. It also has a universal application. So let me just be clear on where I stand with regard to this argument. When this approach of the local versus the universal is used to undermine the consistent and clear teaching of Scripture with regard to the roles of men and women in corporate worship, I think that two-lens approach has gone too far. I believe that this instruction 
Though brought to the surface by the local situation in Ephesus, I believe that it is intended to serve as universally instructive for the church. In other words, I reject the argument that this teaching only applied to the church in Ephesus, and therefore we can reject it today and allow women to preach in the Lord's Day gathering and to assume positions of elder authority in the church. I reject that. And I reject that on the basis not only of this text, which I'm going to try to explain, but also the other passages in the New Testament which affirm what has been dubbed the traditional view of the roles of men and women in the church. So I'm, I'm trying to be as clear as I can be about where we're going and where I stand on this. You may have a different opinion. I hope to convince you otherwise, not just by my logic, but based on what we see in God's Word. Right? So Paul has written this letter to address a series of issues that false teachers have been promoting in the church. And this is a timely topic for us. It seems like over the last 30, 40 years, the issue of women in ministry and uh, the, the boundless desire to allow women into every role within the church and society, that this has just been a, a real major issue for us. We've seen a marked increase in the church in America to ordain female preachers, female pastors over the last few decades. And this is an ongoing debate in some circles. This is not something that we've never addressed. We've taught on this extensively over the last, I've been here for almost 14 years now. We've taught on this quite a bit over the years. But this is an ongoing debate. If you look online, you'll see this going on. This is an ongoing debate within the SBC right now. Because back in June of this year, the SBC chose to expel five churches who had ordained female pastors. So they are still trying to hold the line on some of those things. But this is, a, this is a hot button issue even for us today. But I want to say this. There's more to this passage than just the role of women. Paul gives instruction for the men who lead the congregation. And let's not just skip over that. It's important instruction. And then he gives instruction on how godly women should prioritize spiritual beauty of, you know, in, in light of physical beauty, more than you would physical beauty or external beauty. And then he issues a clear prohibition against women teaching and exercising authority. So there's three things that this text teaches us. I'm only going to get to the first two this week, and so my Thanksgiving sermon for next week is going to be about women in ministry. It's going to be great. I'm sure you're going to love it. But as we begin to study this morning, let's keep in mind that these instructions pertain to the corporate gathering of the church, and Paul expects these instructions to be applied universally. Let me make my argument for you. Let's look at verse 8 again. We'll focus in on the men and their prayers. Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, several English translations place verse 8 as the final verse of the previous section on corporate prayer, and then they use the word therefore to connect the two sections. I think it fits best in the way that the ESV and the, the Christian standard, the CSB, connects it to verse 8 um, and the rest of the passage as we go, because Paul has shifted his focus here. He shifted his focus from this, this instruction on prayer, this broad instruction on prayer, to a more clear instruction on the roles of men and women within the corporate gathering. But notice how he introduces this section. He says, I desire then that in every place the men 
should pray. Every phrase there is important. Every word there is important. Paul is expressing to us his desire. You can actually translate that as his emphasized will, his strongly emphasized will as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that in every place, notice that phrase, in every place, the men should pray. Paul is emphasizing his apostolic authority. He's he's establishing a pattern of leadership that is to be applied everywhere. That is, in every place. That phrase, in every place, in my opinion, turns the discussion of a merely local application of this passage on its head. He says this is to be applied in every place. Paul clearly has in mind that this teaching is to be applied in every gathering, in every church gathering. And several commentators have connected the the terminology that is used here of men praying, lifting holy hands in every place. They've connected it to Malachi chapter 1. When's the last time you read Malachi? probably been a while. Let me quote it for you. Here's what it says. This is the Lord speaking. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so what we have in Malachi there is something of the missionary mandate. That the name of the Lord is to be proclaimed. The name of the Lord is to be proclaimed in every nation, in every place. And when it's done, in in every place, incense is to be offered with pure, as a pure offering. So this is a a function of the missionary mandate. And, And this is what Paul is desiring. But when we connect it back to Malachi, we know that this is not just Paul's desire. This is God's desire as well. That men... The Greek word there is aner. It's talking about adult males. It's not an ambiguous term. It's a very clear term that men, adult males, will take the lead in worshiping God and and leading the local gathering to worship the Lord together. And in this case, Paul says he wants the men to pray. To pray. It's the same word he used in the previous section. It means to approach God in order to express the needs of God's people. But notice something else about this. He says that this prayer is to be offered by men and it involves the lifting of holy hands. Okay, now here's where the the debate really kind of hits its stride, right? So some will argue that this focus on posture, the lifting of holy hands, since that's just a cultural emphasis, that it doesn't apply to the church universally, right? I mean, we don't require that when men stand that they pray lifting their hands and so the argument goes that since we don't recognize this as a universal command that the rest of the passage should not be understood as a universal command either do you see the logic okay but here's the question we have to ask what what is he talking about what is what does that mean is it just simply talking about the posture of prayer or is there something else that helps us to understand what paul is actually getting at And I think that there is. When we study what this phrase means and how this phrase was used, we understand that it's not so much about the lifting of hands as what the lifting of hands signifies. Notice that he says the men are to lift holy hands. The point of this phrase is to require the men who offer prayers in worship to be concerned about holiness. They are to lift holy 
hands. And there's a background to this passage. There's a background to this phrase and the way that it's being used in the corporate gathering of God's people. The background of this passage goes all the way back to the Old Covenant. And you might remember this. When, when you look at the Old Covenant and you see those individuals that God has set apart, anointed to serve the people of God, to serve in worship, those were men. And there, there were certain rules that they had to follow, certain ceremonies that they had to follow. When, the, when the, the male leaders, the rabbis and the priests, when they would come together over the people of God, they would extend their hands over the people of God in order to pronounce a blessing over them. So there's the idea of the lifting of hands. It's when, when those men whom God has ordained, whom God has called, whom God has anointed to serve, when they come to lift their hands and pronounce a blessing, their hands should be holy hands. And this goes back to the priests as well. Because you remember, before the priests could actually engage in their service of ministry within the temple, what did they have to do? They had to wash their hands. And that was a, it was a ceremony not as though God is going to say, no, you can't come before me until you go into the bathroom and wash with antibacterial soap. It's not about that. The symbol there is that they are to be concerned about their own personal purity and holiness. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 30, verses 19 through 21, and other passages if you would like. The outward ceremony of washing signifies an inward condition of a pursuit of holiness which is required of all those who serve in ministry. And that's the context here. Before men step forward to pray, calling on the Lord to bless the people of God, they need to first concern themselves with holiness in their walk with the Lord. And this is still true of any who seek to lead the church today. A call to ministry is a call to prepare, both the mind and the heart. We prepare our minds through the diligent study of God's Word, through meditation on the truth, and by driving the roots of our faith deep into what God has revealed. And we prepare our hearts by confessing our sin and keeping a short list of sin before God. We, we turn away from those patterns of sin that lead us astray and we seek to live at peace with both God and men. We prepare our hearts and our minds. And that's what Paul is concerned with in this verse. He is calling on the men of the church in Ephesus. He's calling on Timothy to instruct and ensure that the men who are serving in leadership in the church at Ephesus were taking seriously the work of ministry. That they were purifying themselves. That they would have holy hands so that when they stand before the people of God and they offer prayers on behalf of the people, they're not a barrier to the, to the relationship that those people have with God. They are to have hands that are purified by a sincere devotion to Christ and His Word. The psalmist says this. He asks the question in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? And here's the response, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That phrase, clean hands, he's not saying, you can't come into my temple until you wash your hands. It it signifies a a pursuit of purity in life as well as a, a pure heart of devotion to the Lord. That's what Paul is after here when he says that he desires that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. But the next thing he mentions about men who lead worship is that they are to be without anger 
or quarreling. You see that right there in the text? I desire that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And this is, this is consistent with the New Testament. Maybe you remember this. We've already looked at the Sermon on the Mount a little bit this morning, but there's actually a, a teaching on, in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus about two brothers who have a quarrel between the two of them. Do you remember this instruction? He says, if you're going to worship and you remember that your brother has a problem, there's, there's something between you and your brother, you are to leave your gift at the altar. You remember this text. Go and be reconciled to that brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is placing a priority on reconciliation, on humility and forgiveness and and being restored in your fellowship to other brothers and sisters in the fellowship before you come to worship. And and notice the, the trajectory of the language that Paul uses here. He talks about anger first. He said they should not have anger. And anger is an emotion in the heart. It's a, it's a secondary emotion. Something has happened and it's caused anger and animosity in the heart. But he says that anger and that animosity will then produce quarreling. So anger is a heart attitude. Quarreling is a corporate problem. And here's what he's trying to help us understand. Hostile feelings often lead to hostile actions. Anger in the heart leads to quarreling in practice, which means that these things are connected as the principle and the practice of a person who is sowing division and disunity among God's people. Paul is saying those men aren't fit to lead the church. Those fit men aren't fit to stand before God's people and offer prayers on behalf of the people. Those men aren't fit to lead the church. So, we can apply this in a couple of ways. As, as leaders in the congregation, elders, deacons, and teachers, our pursuit of personal holiness and confessing our sins and having a, a, an attitude of peace and love and humility before all, that's incredibly important. And I'll explain why in a minute. But what about you? Maybe you're not a teacher. You're not a leader. Is it important for you to be reconciled to a brother or sister before you come to the worship gathering? Absolutely it is. And it seems as though that those arguments that we have in the car, those arguments that we have in getting out of the house on time, that those things just kind of manifest themselves and multiply on Sunday morning. Amen? Why that happens, I don't know. But it does. Maybe there's a spiritual issue going on there, but it happens. What should you do when that happens? Maybe you're sitting here right now and you're thinking about that argument you had and that that sharp word you said to your son or daughter before you left the house, what should you do? You need to address that now. You need to seek forgiveness now before you offer your worship to the Lord. Those disagreements that develop during the week, maybe a Facebook disagreement, maybe something happens in a text, maybe it was somebody that you're working with, whatever the case might be, before you come before the Lord and offer your worship to the Lord, you should seek reconciliation first. Those harsh words need to be confessed. And I'm not saying you can get mad at somebody on Monday and not reconcile until Sunday. I'm saying you, at, at the very least, you need to understand that the impact of your disunity with other brothers in, in the church is going to affect the worship in the church. Yeah, you need to go and be reconciled as soon as you're convicted of that sin or you're confronted by that sin. But the reason that this is so important or at least one of the reasons that this is so important, is that the gathering of God's people to worship is a unifying event. It's a unifying act. 
right, Breck? Breck and I have talked about this extensively. He's taught on this before. One of the reasons why we are commanded to gather together is so that we can all worship Christ together and sit under the same preaching of God's Word together so that our hearts and our minds are unified around that teaching. One of the reasons we're all here, we're all in the same place listening to the same sermon, is so that our hearts and minds can be aligned with one another's hearts and minds. So that there can be unity that comes as a result of the preaching and teaching of the Word in the corporate gathering. And here's what Paul is saying. When men who are in leadership are undermining what's going on in the corporate gathering, because instead of focusing on truth and peace and love and unity, they're focused on anger and selfish ambition and division. He's saying they are, they are completely turning their, that calling upside down. They're doing the ap- opposite of what God intends the worship gathering to produce. And some of you have seen that. Some of you have experienced that. You've been in churches where leaders were more often angry than they were humble. And you know just how important it is for the leaders of the congregation, the elders, to be men who seek peace and unity rather than division. And that doesn't mean we stray away from hard subjects. right? And we're dealing with a hard subject today. But there's a way we can do that. It is almost certain that if you think about the context of this letter, it is almost certain that the false teachers in Ephesus were such men and probably some women as well. Their teaching style and their attempts at leadership caused disputes. It caused divisions within the church. They liked stirring things up. You know people just like this. They're promoting divisive teaching, and Paul knew these people. That's one of the things we need to keep in mind. Paul knew these brothers and sisters. He spent two years in the church in Ephesus. And at one point, he even confronted the leaders of the church to their face and warned them that their their intentions, their anger and divisiveness is going to affect the church. Here's what he said to them. This is in Acts chapter 20. Are y'all familiar with this? In Acts chapter 20, as he's on his way through missionary journeys, he's about to go, he's about to leave again. And before he does, he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus together and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Not only is Paul telling Timothy to address this, Paul addressed this face to face. He warned these men about doing these things. He knows these leaders and he understands the problems they are causing and he is urging Timothy now to address those problems and bring things back into order. But let me remind you, Paul also wants this help to be a help to the universal church facing the same problems. Verse 8 serves as a universal principle that the church gathering should be led by faithful, peace-loving, and humble men. They should be passionately pursuing personal holiness in their relationship with God and their fellow Christians. And that's his instruction for the men. Now he's going to turn his attention to the ladies. Let's look at verse 9. He says, Likewise also, 
And it goes back to verse 8 where he says, I desire then. So likewise, his desire also is that women should adorn themselves in a respectable or in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So having addressed the men and their role in public worship, Paul now shifts to the women. And his primary concern here has to do with the type of adornment the type of beauty that the women of God should be pursuing. This instruction has both an outward physical dimension and an inner spiritual dimension. And just like anger gives rise to divisiveness, these two things are connected. We don't, we don't need to mistake that. Don't, don't, don't adopt modern Gnosticism that says, well, what I do externally has no bearing on my spiritual condition. The Bible says th- the opposite is true. That the outward appearance is a reflection of the inner spiritual commitment. And that is consistent throughout Scripture. Paul wants us to recognize that, that the condition of the heart gives rise to certain practices in life. The outer appearance is a reflection of an inner commitment. And what he does first is he addresses this outward appearance. And he says that outward appearance of women should be in line with what is respectable or what is suitable for godly women in the church. He uses three terms here. He uses the term respectable and modest and self-controlled. So let's, let's do a couple of things. Let's define those terms so we understand what he's talking about. And then let's, let's think about the, the cultural context, right? So that local context helps us to understand what was going on so that we can derive those principles and instructions and apply them to our own current setting. So that to dress respectably, the word respectably, it carries the idea of dressing in a way that evokes honor among the people of God. When, when godly people, when mature Christians see the way you're dressed, they, they would say that is respectable. It evokes honor among the people of God. And, and that's what women are to pursue. Rather than a type of dress that evokes feminine jealousy or that attracts male sexual attention. And the reason I use those two things is because of the context, because of the the background situation. We actually know a lot about what's going on in the church at Ephesus because it wasn't just uh, a localized problem. So let me talk about it a little bit. In the Roman culture of the day, it was common for women to signal their status or their intentions by the way they dressed. Not that much different from our own culture today, right? Women would signal their status or their intentions, meaning their intentions to attract a male suitor, by the way they dressed. A woman could display her wealth by wearing elaborate clothing decked with jewelry and sculpted hair, all of which in that culture required an extensive amount of wealth. And that's what was going on. And then women who were single were looking to attract a man by dressing in a more provocative way. And there are entire books that have been written on this. So I'm just giving you a thumbnail oversimplification of the the context. And if you add to this the fact that in the city of Ephesus, you might remember this from your history, in the city of Ephesus, there was a temple to Artemis. Or if you've read the book of Acts, you know that there's a temple to the goddess, the pagan deity, uh, Artemis, a female pagan deity at that. And that cultic practice involved cult prostitutes, and it was that influence was having an effect upon the the culture in Ephesus. 
women in the city were beginning to dress like those same cult prostitutes. And this gave rise to something of an ancient sexual revolution. And the situation became so so much of a problem in culture, it spread from Ephesus beyond. It became such a problem that it was eventually addressed by Roman law. Augustus actually issued legislation against this type of behavior. And so, so here's the context. While this had a, a local application, it became a universal problem in the empire. And, and that's one of the reasons why Paul's instruction here is not just localized, it's universal. Because these same trends that were happening you know, on Rodeo Drive found their way into Wiley. Exact, that's how it happens today. So he gives instruction for how do you address this issue here, and that instruction is to be applied universally. But the reason that Paul's addressing this issue doesn't have to do with the fact that it poses a threat to Roman culture. He addresses it because it fails to reflect the proper behavior of women who profess godliness. That's what he says. Peter addressed the same practice in his letter. So this is not just the Apostle Paul's uh, you know, chauvinistic issue with women. This is being addressed throughout Scripture. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Peter says, do not, and this is the same terminology, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Same context, same issue, same terminology. Here's a quote from one of the commentators that I read this week. He says, At this time, the widely approved apparel of the wife, so if we look at what was respectable in the Roman culture, the widely approved apparel of the wife was the stola. It was a robe, a a large robe-like garment that would cover the body. Uh, As a sign of marital fidelity and respectability, women would wear the stola, uh, but it was presented with a contrast to the other more revealing and colorful clothing of the toga, which was the common clothing of the prostitute. Now, if if you know anything about garments in the Roman culture, you, you probably know the toga, you probably don't know the stola very well. But that's the point. One of them is intended to do something, to say something, to attract something. And one of them was intending to, sh- to be respectable, to show honor to both the Lord and the husband. So the, the issue here is that there was a trend, a trend in clothing. And the trend was for dr- women to dress in such a way to draw attention to their status as well as their physical appearance. And Paul is saying, as Christian women, you need to dress in a way that is respectable, that reflects the honor and commitment that you have to Christ. He urges women to adorn themselves with inner beauty, the inner beauty of godliness, the inner beauty of pursuing good works, rather than an outward beauty intended to attract sexual attention. That's the context here. And this is still an issue that we need to be concerned about today. He uses two other terms. He uses the term modesty. And you could think about that in terms of decency, but you, probably, you know the term modesty. It, 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 it's a type of self-conscious desire to represent oneself in a way that reflects a commitment to Christ. As well as, in the case of a married woman, that reflects a commitment to her husband. It means that they aren't intending to put themselves on display 
but are intending to honor their husbands and their Lord. And then finally, he uses the phrase self-controlled in a way that is self-controlled. How do you... I think what he means here, based on the context and based on how this word is used, he wants women to apply wisdom in the way that you adorn yourself rather than being controlled by sinful impulses or simply by fashion trends. Just because it's fashionable, just because it's trendy, doesn't mean it's necessarily modest. So with all of these terms, Paul is calling Christian women away from cultural trends that are, that are questionable at best and toward an intentional effort to honor Christ in the way you dress and in the way you carry yourself within the church. Now, we don't address this that often. Mainly, we just address this when it comes up in the text, but it's clear in the text. Women today face some of the same exact temptations, some of the same exact impulses. And I don't believe necessarily that what Paul is saying is that you can't wear something that, uh, that appeals to your feminine sensibilities. What he's saying there is there's, there's some connection between the inner intention of the heart and the way that you dress. What is your inner intention? What is your goal? Paul's instruction here hasn't changed. The godly principles that were to guide Christian women in Ephesus are the same principles that should guide faithful women today. So at the risk of missing some things here, I've, I've come up with some questions that might be helpful for women to ask themselves, for men as well, to ask ourselves as we are getting dressed and coming to church or getting dressed and going about our day. Why do you choose the clothes that you wear? What is the purpose? What is the goal? Do you spend more time on your hair and makeup than you do in pursuing godliness by studying the Word? What is your end goal in picking out an outfit? What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to catch the eye of other men or women? Are you trying to be seductive in order to garner attention? Or are you more concerned with presenting godly character? The real point of Paul's teaching here, and I know I'm going to get this, so I'm going to try to head it off a little bit. The real point of Paul's teaching here is not to apply some legalistic ban on feminine beauty, but rather to stress the far superior value of inner beauty and encourage the women of God to pursue that. After all, God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Inner beauty is a far greater value than outer beauty, and no one confirms this more than the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, well, that's the last example I would think about. But let me, let me argue this for you. Jesus was apparently not much to look at. I mean, he wasn't much to look at. The prophets tell us that. But his heart was purer than any human that ever walked this earth. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah tells us this. As he forecasts the coming of Christ, he says, He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him to be nothing, but surely 
He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the point I want to make. Jesus wasn't concerned with outward beauty. His desire was to please his Father. And that was what his instruction aimed at. Not the outward appearance, but the inner person of the heart. His true beauty as a man was veiled. His true beauty was hidden from those who saw him, especially those who saw him as a threat to their power and influence. But for us, for those who believe, we have come to see the beauty of Christ, not in the external appearance. We've never laid eyes on him. But we've come to see the beauty of his soul, of his love, of his sacrifice, of his humility, of his commitment to the truth, of his commitment to the Father, and of his own divine beauty. We have come to see that. And we have seen his love, a love put on display when he died on the cross to save sinners like you and me. Jesus gives us an example. He gives us a perfect example of a value to inner beauty over and above the outward appearance. And so as believers in Christ, our intention, our goal is to live a life that reflects our relationship to Him. Like Christ, we invest in the inward beauty of faith. We desire to adorn our lives with the spiritual fruits of faith and hope and love and peace and gentleness and godliness And at the risk of sounding cheesy, these are the kind of decorations that we never have to take down, unlike the Christmas lights we're about to put up. There's quite a bit more that we can talk about in this passage, right? There's so much more, and we will get to that next week. But before we leave, let me just try to bring this down to uh, some practical principles that we can take away from this message. Number one, these instructions apply to us today, both as men and as women. Paul wanted this teaching to be applied in every place, in every church. Was there a local situation that brought on this need for the need for this teaching? Absolutely. But the instruction for how to address the problems in a God-honoring way is to be applied in the same way wherever these problems are found. This teaching has universal importance for the church. Number two, men are called to lead the church with humility. Church leaders are to be faithful, peace-loving, humble men. They should be passionately pursuing personal holiness in their relationship with God and their fellow Christians. They must recognize that a calling to ministry is a call to prepare for ministry. And they must understand that the goal isn't personal gain obtained through anger or division, but faith working through love to produce unity. Men are called to lead the church with humility. And then finally... Women are called to adorn themselves with godliness. Women are called to adorn themselves with godliness. The Bible, look, we taught on this in the summer. The Bible is unapologetic in its celebration of the wonder of feminine beauty. God has made women to possess a type of beauty that can move the heart of a nation and the type of strength that can support a nation. And at the same time, the Bible is also clear that the most truthful and lasting beauty of womanhood is not found in the outward appearance, 
but the adornment of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So God's word reveals that physical beauty is fleeting, but a woman who trusts in the Lord, a woman who adorns herself in respectful, modest, and self-controlled way is a woman who's pursuing godliness. And that's what, they're being, that's what you're being called to pursue. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue to sing and worship. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for giving us instruction in the hard things. And now I pray that you would give us tender hearts to your word, that you would help us to be desirous, even passionate about pursuing the truth and being faithful to it. I pray that you would move among us even now to produce unity in our hearts, centered around our commitment to Christ and your word. And Lord, how we walk this out, how we seek to be faithful, whether repentance is needed or correction is needed, it, it all should be covered with your grace and kindness. And so, Lord, help us as we go forward to be faithful to you, not only in the outward things, but also in the inner man, in the inner woman, the inner person of faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.